Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. If you are a regular listener to this show, I would put money on you having read and loved at least one novel by Julia Glass. She is author of seven novels, among them Three Junes, winner of the National Book Award, and I See You Everywhere, winner of the Binghamton University John Gardner Fiction Book Award. A recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York Foundation of the Arts, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, Glass is a distinguished writer-in-residence at Emerson College. Today, Julia and I will be discussing her latest novel, Vigil Harbor, a story of the near future in which many of our current crises are amplified in terrifying yet recognizable ways. The COVID pandemic and its after effects are still felt. Coastal communities are being swept into the sea. A violent wave of xenophobia and anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment stokes fires everywhere. Such is the world a little more than a decade from now in Julia's imaginings. Like so many of Julia's works of fiction, it is the voices of the characters that populate this world that make the novel sing. There's the architect, Austin Kepner, who obsesses over building houses that are made to withstand the furies of an angry planet's weather. Margot, the sardonic, brainy teacher... Brecht, home from NYU after escaping a domestic terror attack, and so many other unique and compelling voices. Life in the small coastal town of Vigil Harbor is awakened by two visitors, one a stranger and the other well-known to certain inhabitants. The result is a novel of many pleasures that unsettles even as it delights. It is such a pleasure to welcome the incomparable Julia Glass. Thank you, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Um, Julia, you care a great deal about geography in your fiction, Mm. and particularly human life in coastal areas. In Vigil Harbor, that attention to place becomes its own character, with the changes of climate threatening to demolish to demolish a way of life by the ocean. Can you talk about your relationship to place in your novels? And did that relationship change at all with Vigil Harbor? That's a good question, Chris. Um, First of all, uh, I'd like to refer to this as an autogeographical novel, as opposed (laughs) to an autobiographical (laughs) novel. Uh, Vigil Harbor is absolutely based uh, on the town that I live in north of Boston, which is called Marblehead. And like Vigil Harbor, it's a rocky peninsula that sort of shuts out into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it, It has a long, colorful history related to the establishment of colonies in the 17th century. It was originally a 
cod fishing village, and then also had a very played a very important role in the American Revolution because those cod fishermen became the Marblehead Mariners, who were George Washington's Navy. Hmm. Um, and the fortunes of my town, Marblehead, uh, in the years after the Revolution, actually took a steep dive and as a result has been preserved as a town now it's quite affluent as vigil harbor is in this novel um it's a very uh, privileged mostly white mostly liberal town but with a strong sense of new england identity i mean you'll meet people here who are proud to be 12th generation marble headers <laughs> so so i so as i like to tell people in town here who are reading the book, if you find yourself in the book, you have a greater imagination than I do because I did not. This is not a Romana play about our dicey town politics and local <laughs> scandals. In fact, today is voting day for many local offices. So um, we have a strong sense of a local political identity too. But, but if I talk in a larger sense about place, um, one, every fiction writer takes greater pleasure in one part of creating their stories than another. You know, it may be plotting, it may be dialogue. Um, but for me, the greatest pleasure when I'm writing a book is putting the reader in a place. And that place may be a house, a landscape, you know, a community. But, but that's where, you know, I feel most at home. And, and I think it's, it's partly because, you know, I, I Wherever I've lived, whether it's Massachusetts or New England or here in Paris, I'm I'm very alive and attentive to the place I'm in. And you know, through my twenties, I was actually a painter. I didn't hmm. really start seriously writing fiction until my thirties. And I think it has to do also with my visual sense that I really, really look at the world around me. Um, and I love to convey that in, in my fiction. And you know, before. I started writing fiction. I, I read so much fiction in my years as a painter. And I think that many of the writers I love the most are those for whom place exerts a very strong force on their characters' lives, whether it was, you know, Thomas Hardy or Jim Harrison or Alice Munro. Mm. Um, of course, there's Faulkner, too. Um, and, and writers who revisit places over and over again, as I do both New York and New England and coastal New England in particular. There's, it, it makes so much sense now to learn that you are a visual artist first, because these places feel very painted and very, mm. you, you take care with the textures and details of place. And it's very clear that that's where the pleasure center lies um, for you, because it's, it's so carefully shown. I have to say, I love, there's a little dig against this idea of New England longevity in a place in your novel. I forget the exact <laughs> quote. Um, you can remind me, but a character basically well, says, why is it important that somebody lived, you know, has generations who've lived here before them? Well, you know, I, I think um, my father, who had a wonderful wry sense of humor, my mother um, used to joke that she, and my mother grew up on this showcase dairy farm, but she would joke that she married my father for two things, his teeth and his pedigree. And because my father, you know, and, and hence I can trace our ancestry back to um, John Alden and Priscilla Mullins, who came over on the Mayflower. So my mother was so proud that she'd married a descendant of the Mayflower. My father used to say to me, I don't see why there's what, that, that there's anything to be proud of having 
ancestors who had to risk their lives to cross an ocean because they were such social misfits, you know, <laughs> and, and likewise, what, you know, the, the original settlers of Marblehead were these hard scrabble libertarian, very poor fishermen who lived in, you know, barrels before they could build houses. And it's like, oh well, gosh. really, you know, you would want to stay in a, in a place like this forever and ever <laughs> and not improve your fortunes. So, so yeah, that is a bit of a and, joke. And I also love that you have that, a, a version of that line about um, marrying someone for their teeth, but I think it's teeth and vocabulary. And oh, one. oh, yes, yes, you're right. I did use that. <laughs> I, I think it's a, a fabulous it's Largo. line. Right. Thanks. Um, there, there's a famous quote from our mutual friend, the Dickens novel, about reading the police blotter. He do the police in different voices. And it came to mind when I was reading this novel, your care for voice and for differentiating characters by the uniqueness of their language makes this novel and your fiction special. I think writers today often trade sometimes the uniqueness of a character's voice for a general vibe or ambiance of their style overall. How did you work to differentiate the many voices that populate this novel? So, you know, I teach, uh, you do too. I mean, I teach creative writing in an MFA program. And one thing that I say is, you know, it's okay if when you're writing a first draft, everybody sounds just like you. And that's hmm. really, in, in truth, in most cases, when I'm writing at the beginning, everybody sounds like me. Um, and, uh, but as I revise, as I go back and back and back and back, I think very hard about my, about very mundane things like my students, my students, my characters' education, um, you know, where they grew up and, uh, you know, their, and not just their personality. I mean, how there are times when I've had to, I hate using this expression, but it's the handy expression to sort of dumb down a, a character's vocabulary mm -hmm, because that mm -hmm. character is not, you know, is not some Ivy schooled, you know, literature loving, library haunting person like me. So, um, but but in this case, you know, one of the most interesting characters for me to work with, and I had to work very hard in part because he became more important than I thought he would be, is the young man Brecht in this, mm. uh, whose voice is the first one you hear. And, you know, as you know, Vigil Harbor is narrated by eight characters plus an omniscient narrator who comes in occasionally to sort of set the larger scene. But it is Brecht who begins this story. And he is a 21-year-old young man who has come home to Vigil Harbor from New York City where he was in college until he um, escaped, just sur barely survived a very violent act. And as, I mean, I don't know that you've mentioned this yet, but Vigil Harbor is set 12 years in the future. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that occurred to me is that it is in the mouths of our teenagers and our, you know, our young people that uh, language evolves the most quickly. Uh, I'm sure you, you know, it's that you mentioned you have a teenager. I'm sure you've heard brand new adjectives or adjectives used in different ways. And so one of the things for, sure. for me was to, to have Brecht speak in a very slightly futuristic way to to have new slang. And most of the other characters are middle-aged and are older, but um, and so the reader will encounter at the beginning some unfamiliar uses of familiar words. It's not it's not something you have to work very hard to understand. But but I'm glad that that's something that I really took time to 
to think about. Um, yeah, and, there's... and that makes him very individual. But also there's, and Margot, you and I spoke a little bit. Margot is a character who is very feisty, um, very smart. She's a retired English teacher, um, but she's also very angry. And, um, and that anger comes through in the way she speaks. Yes. And in fact, I was hoping that you would read a little section of Margot because I, I love her voice maybe best. Thank you. And maybe it's the it's the fact that we both um, share teaching as an occupation, but there's something about the 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 wry and and witty and and kind of book smart teacher who's also a little world world weary um that I love about her and, and she's so sort of sharp and, and sharp tongued. So there's a little hilarious section where she's almost kind of um, thinking through her own way of of speaking. And I, I wonder if you'd just read that one paragraph for me. So which is, do you want me to read the paragraph that begins to hell with? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, she, she has, her husband has left her and this is a scandal that helps set off the, the, the story. So she has just gone shopping and decided that you know, even though she's now alone because she's an empty nester in her house, she's just going to go ahead and make a big grocery run. And uh, so this is what she's thinking after she brings the groceries home. To hell with smaller quantities, I decided, with shopping like a spinster sparrow. One of our guilty, extravagant pleasures and a blessing during times of plague was always the basement freezer, the sort of wattage guzzling colossus used by modern frontiersmen to store an entire elk or by mass murderers to hoard and preserve the remains of missing teenagers. I can tell you this. Tom is going to pine for my gritty sense of humor, the chief side effect of having to police my own mouth all day, five days a week, in a public school with eyes and ears in every room, temperature sensors at the entrance and bulletproof glass in the windows. Tom said he could always tell when I'd spent the day teaching Dickinson or Wordsworth or Billy fucking Lanyard Collins because my language was spicier and my taste in movies crude. Not that we don't all revere the curiously immortal Miss Emily, at least in moderate doses. That, that's wonderful. And I, I find it so evocative of her, of her character. And there's, there's such a lot in that, that one paragraph um, where we get a sense of, okay, this is a world that still has a kind of lingering sense of the pandemic. Um, there's, mm-hmm. I, I was very struck um, in rereading this passage by the bulletproof glass um, as we are, you know, considering yeah. in very way, many ways, our schools and the right. how gun violence has just absolutely um, destroyed the idea of them as places of safety and in and in this world in vigil vigil harbor's world um you know safety in every feature of life is in some way thrown asunder but there's also the hilarious reference to billy collins famous um (laughs) poem the lanyard about his his love for his mother um which is you know yeah there's lots to say about
about that, but we get a sense of uh, Margot very strongly in even just that one description. Um, I I wonder in, you know, since clearly you were writing this for many years before um, our, our, our moment, but but obviously writing it in in the midst of covid um what did it feel like to broach covid in the in the novel i i know a lot of writers feel really kind of unsure about how that can live in their novels well absolutely but but i should tell you that i had in fact basically finished a pretty polished draft in early 2020 so oh, wow. I had the challenge <laughs> of putting COVID into to a novel that I had basically completed, which was incredibly hard to do. Mm. And at first, I, I was just very pessimistic about being able to have that happen. But I should go back and say that this novel, normally I work on one novel at a time. And, you know, my joke is I'm a serial monogamist. And, you know, I work <laughs> with one set of characters until publication do us part. And only when I let the book go into the pipeline at the publisher do I start to write the next book. So, um, but what happened was I was working on this book in, I'm going to say 2012, 2013. And I, for various reasons I won't go into, I just, I got stuck and I'd written about 150 pages maybe. And suddenly I started to think about another set of characters. And I have to tell you, it felt literally like I was having an affair. I mean, I felt so guilty. I had this little file folder in the corner of my desktop that I'd say, now you can't go to there, you know, but I'd sneak over. I'd say, okay, only 10 minutes. And these other characters were a, a British movie star, a the assistant to a famous children's book author and a museum curator. And they are the principal characters of my last novel, A House Among the Trees. So in other words, I set Vigil Harbor aside for a couple of years, totally. And, and when, when A House Among the Trees was published, uh, the world had changed a great deal. It was 2017. And mm-hmm. uh, it was in June of 2017 that uh, our relatively new president uh, withdrew us from the Paris Climate Accord. And also it was 2017 in which among 17 named storms, 10 of which were hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, and Maria devastated uh, the Gulf Coast and, of course, Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And so here I had been, I thought, am I going back to this novel that's set in this coastal town? And at that time, the principal character was Austin, the architect, who builds houses designed to withstand extreme weather on the coast. But I thought, you know, this is what crossed my mind, Chris. I thought, you know, what does it mean in this moment to be a climate activist, a cli- someone, you know, advocating and, and, and trying to legislate for changes that will help us address climate change or even climate scientists in a world and under a government that just couldn't care less? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought, what would happen if in order to be heard, those people became violent, that they enacted, that, that, that climate activism became a form of terrorism. And that is where suddenly I decided I wanted to set this book just enough in the future that the volume is turned up on all the things that we have so much anxiety about, political Mm -hmm. divisiveness, immigration policy, reproductive rights, but most, but in the foreground, um, 
you know, what does it mean to fight for, uh, to fight against climate change, to, to try to make anything happen. And so, although it is not at all in my normal wheelhouse to, to be, to be a speculative writer, to, to write about the supernatural or the paranormal or the dystopian, I thought I can, I can write about a world that is still recognizable um, at least the immediate world. It's still a Julia Glass novel that's very much about family and family relationships and friendships and the importance of community. Um, but things are going to be a little more dire. And I'm also, of course, writing about a community that regards itself as fairly uh, insulated from the mm-hmm. changes of the larger world. And of course, that's a complete illusion, as the novel shows, as you know, you alluded to, the because though the, the those dire issues and the violence um sort of begotten by them come to town in a very mm-hmm. dramatic way uh um but but i am not writing about a world that has been you know nuked to the ground or back into the stone age or this is not and this is certainly not science fiction you know i'm pretty timid about the changes in technology that i created in this book so so there i was finally i i clicked into what i wanted to do with this i just about you know done with a polished draft march 2020 and i'm you know i won't say the expletives that went into my head but i you know you can imagine i sounded a lot like margo um, and <laughs> Uh, and I just thought, how can I do this? And because here's the thing, you know, the closer the future you write about, the narrower your margin of error. Because COVID, what, and at that point, you know, who knew what was going to happen? Was it going to take five years to get a vaccine, as Anthony Fauci warned us back in 2020? Was it, you know, but I thought I'm going to go with the idea that we that we don't get entirely through COVID, but we get to a better place. And then I thought to myself, I, in all my novels, you, the reader, go very deep into every important character's past. I mean, the, you know, each of my characters is like a deep well. And so I had already been depicting various hardships and losses and ordeals that my characters had already been through. And then I thought, well, what was it like for each of them to go through the experience of those first years of COVID? Um, and so then... That's how I was able to go back into the novel and to to put COVID into it, and I, and I think without, it, I, I think it doesn't feel shoehorned in. I mean, it and, no, and it my feels editor quite subtle, actually, actually. Yeah, it, my editor said, you know, it actually feels because she'd read a draft before. She said it, it it COVID gave a kind of scaffolding to the world that I'm writing about here. You know, the the that the world had been through you know, this global uh, crisis and, and huge mortality event, if that's what we call it, so many deaths. So, so you know, so it ended up working out, I think, I think, mm-hmm. but, it, but it was not, but it had to be pushed in later. I don't and find I, it heavy handed and it felt um, important. And I agree with the idea of it being scaffolding, but you, you also anticipated my question about the, the idea of a of a climate change novel. And when I had Ruman Alam on the show, he made the argument that all fiction now is climate fiction, whether it hmm. thinks of itself hmm. as such. But then when I wow. put that same premise to Alexandra Kleeman, she argued that while that might be right, we need better ways of talking about the coming disaster in that fiction. 
And Vigil Harbor, I think, takes takes a chance with that and says, as you say, let's not begin with the world is raised to, to ashes, but right. let's think about what life in particularly dire times looks like and how do you still have, you know, loves, losses, relationships, ways of being, building community, things like that. Um, so mm -hmm. is that something you were thinking through when you were imagining all all of a sudden, oh, I'm writing a climate novel. Well, you know, first of all, I never thought I'm writing a climate novel. And, and you know, I like to joke that it's very important while writing a novel that I remain sort of stupid to a certain degree. In other words, that I'm not entirely aware of what it is I'm doing, because even though the notion of foregrounding climate activism was in my mind, I didn't think, oh, I'm writing about climate change per se. I, I mean, it's hard to explain that. But the first interview I did for this book, which was a couple months before it came out, was with Publishers Weekly. And it was for a roundup of seven climate change novels, Cli-Fi, you know, it's called, mm -hmm. coming out in the spring. And I, my publicist, I said, and I sort of bristled and said, this isn't Cli-Fi. But the more I talk about the book now that it's out, the more I realize <laughs> that I just, okay, it's like, you know, Accept the accept the reality that that's really what you wanted to write about, and mm -hmm. and and also I think that part of it is that I take for granted that living on the on a coast, um, the weather, the climate, and the weather are always at the at the forefront of what people talk about. What you know, the tides. I mean, literally, you know, knowing when high tide and low tide are, are important at various times. What the wind is doing. Um, this is a town of sailors. I am not a sailor, but. I'm happy to be ballast on your sailboat if we don't go anywhere too far out of the harbor. But, um, but uh, you know, so it, it, climate is a is a huge topic of conversation, and not, not necessarily in an apocalyptic way when you live in a coastal town. So, so there's that. But, but I also want to say that I I don't think that I will ever write a novel that doesn't have a hopeful ending. And I realize that's a double negative, but one of the challenges for me was to be honest about how I feel about some of the things that, that we are, you know, some of the disasters that we are potentially headed toward. There's no doubt about that in my mind, but also feeling that there, there is reason to be optimistic, perhaps not on all fronts, but on some fronts. And when I created a character and that character is Mike, um, who is a marine biologist, uh, whose work is, you know, trying to restore and save the, the, the beautiful salt marshes of the North Shore here in Massachusetts, which I believe are the um, largest contiguous uh, salt marshes remaining on the East Coast, uh, many others having been absolutely destroyed either by development or by, um, in the case of the Gulf Coast, the oil industry. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it, it sometimes it's thankless work. I, I actually went to some lectures and did some research on that while I was writing the novel. So, so naturally, you have someone here, a marine biologist, whose <laughs> whose work is somewhat punishing. In truth, mm -hmm. um, at one point, he makes the sort of grim joke that he's he's in marine hospice is his profession, oh. um, and and of course that's the worst possible picture but but i'm also a believer that people are very are ingenious and enterprising and adaptive uh there's 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 i actually read a really 
wonderful editorial in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago by Ezra Klein, and it's called Your Kids Are Not Doomed. Um, and, and it's about this, it's, it's about in part why, even though we have to face realities, and, and there's a lot that we can't reverse in the damages we've done, there's also reason to be hopeful, not to give up. So, so that's the stance I wanted to take. Yeah, in, and, in, and in Alexandra... Alexandra Kleeman makes the a, a similar point, I think, in in saying that you know by having hope within desperate situations that you don't allow people, the writer included, to then sort of just roll over and and go into the fetal position, because if it's all hopeless, then that's that's where people will start to to move toward. But rather, climate. Yeah. fiction can have take the place of offering glimpses of hope that may make us into different kinds of activists. You know, I, I do think, though, that it's that there's also a very important place for fiction that shows the worst case scenario. And I'll tell you, you know, when I was a child, <laughs> I worked at my public library. You can actually start working as a paid page in fifth grade, which nowadays is considered <laughs> you know, illegal <laughs> child labor. Um, and I read a lot of books way too young, um, some of them erotic and some of them just really terrifying. And I, I'll never forget reading On the Beach by Neville Shute. Now, so mind you, this is in the 1960s and early 70s. This is, this you know, is high nuclear, cold war. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nuclear and, and, if and the thing novel. that everybody was the most afraid of was mm -hmm. all out nuclear warfare. And huh, of course, now, <laughs> thank you, Vladimir Putin, we're thinking about that one again. Yeah. Um, but I read that book, and that is about the last few people alive after a major apocalyptic worldwide nuclear strike, you know, on a beach in Australia. And they're all dying of radiation sickness. And the, it's the a cheery is, novel. Yeah, was, and so um, th that's important, too. I mean, I think we have to. to and, and, and by the way, a novel that I read last fall that came out last fall on 2034 by Elliot Ackerman and, uh, you know, the much decorated Iraq and Afghanistan veteran who's also who's a fiction writer um, that he co-wrote with Admiral um, Stavridis. Uh, and the reason I read it, well, first of all, I heard a great interview with, with Elliot Ackerman on NPR, but um, that 2034 is in fact the year that Vigil Harbor takes place in. I mean, it uh. doesn't say so, but if you do the mm. math... It takes place in spring of 2034. Well, the novel 2034 imagines that that's the year we go, we enter World War III. Hmm. And, um, and it's quite a suspenseful, um, and, you know, it, it doesn't end in the destruction of the entire world, but nuclear bombs are launched. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, if my characters in Vigil Harbor you know, if this was the world they were living in, they, they'd have bigger problems than the ones they're worried about in the course of my book. But you see, I don't feel like, I don't feel that Elliot Ackerman or I am setting out to predict that this is what that year will look like. We're saying, look at what, look at what might happen to us, it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and he's mm -hmm. thinking about warfare and diplomacy and, and and the military games that we play worldwide. And I'm thinking about, um, I mean, po poli the politics of climate and also the way politics divide people. Um, because they're, you know, in the world that I'm writing about, there's a, a spin-off political party called the End Timers. And, uh, and that enters into the plot line a little bit too. 
Mm-hmm. Without giving too much away, um, one of the central plot elements of the novel is the arrival arrival of a visitor to the coastal community. Mm-hmm. But visitation and hospitality, how individuals and communities treat strangers, is a crucial aspect at the heart of Vigil Harbor. Can yeah. you say a little bit about what you were doing with the idea of the stranger or the visitor in this novel? Well, first of all, I mean, I think, I don't know if it was Stephen King, but some writer once said, you know, there are only two kinds of plots. One is a stranger comes to town and the other is someone leaves town, you know, <laughs> leave town, come to town, whatever. And, and in a way that's true. Um, so there are actually two strangers who come to town in Vigil Harbor um, mm-hmm. and separately. And, and one of them is, is bent on revenge um, and in, and, uncovering a secret in the in the past life of the architect who's an important character and the other one the one you're alluding to is someone and and i can't give too much away who who is very charming and presents himself in a light that i think the reader can suspect is not the entire truth and it is his arrival in town that is going to unleash um that's going to put a number of the characters in danger, but 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 the thing about Vigil Harbor, and, and this is how the book the book begins with an omniscient voice talking about what does it mean to live on a peninsula? If you choose to live on what is essentially a cul-de-sac, it means that nobody really ever comes through town. And that's true about the town I live in. You don't have people coming through town going, oh my God, I'm so totally lost. How do I find such and such? I mean, unless they really got off the GPS. And <laughs> I mean, in fact, it's very hard to get to this town. And once you're in this town, because there are all these little colonial one-way streets, it's very hard to get out of this town. And I, I, my joke is that we're basically Brigadoon. Um, but it means that everybody knows everybody. And I'll tell you that during uh, the summer of 2020, you know, high COVID, pre-vaccination, it, it became very apparent that a lot of people had sort of discovered my town that we're taking day trips out from from Boston and that you know your your favorite little rocky cove where you'd go swimming suddenly there's someone you know isn't from town and and often when you live in a town like this you have this kind of you know obnoxiously defensive feel like hey that's my beach who are you and you think no in fact i live in this really beautiful place and why shouldn't we share this town that we live in? So, mm-hmm. so there is that sense of insularity that, that's quite um, contagious. And, and there's also, you know, in this novel, another very important character who actually comes, he was a major character in my novel, The Widower's Tale, is Celestino, who has, who is Guatemalan. He's been in this country for decades. He came as a teenager and he's married to a woman who grew up in Vigil Harbor. And yet, even so, he still feels not only like a kind of outsider, he has a successful landscaping business, but um, but he actually still feels that his status is not that secure. Um, the sense that at any moment, things could really go south and he could end up you know, being deported somehow. And his wife, of course, doesn't completely understand that, but he is crucial to the plot line with the stranger coming to town. Yes, and I and I thought that it, the way that immigration and and how climate change 
pushes and will inevitably push on the sort of xenophobic uh, lizard brains of um, yes. uh, of people as they as as they see that the climate is going to cause this refugee crisis and you have um, immigration take a, a really sort of horrible turn and one that that echoes a lot of what happened uh, under the Trump administration but forecasts mm. much worse things to come right. and I I wonder if, as you were um, thinking about Celestino and and his kind of discomfort in not knowing his place, whether you were thinking at all about um, you know what the future might look like when we have to have a very new sense of what an immigrant is, who an immigrant is. You know, um, a friend of mine here in town is is has worked very hard helping um, some. Uh, Afghan families uh, who who were brought out of Afghanistan by our government to to settle in this area and and sh and she's seen some pretty surprising xenophobia among very liberal people. I mean, it, you know, if you live in a in an affluent white privileged town, which is what this mostly is. In fact, I my husband's joke about the town we live in, and this was we moved from New York City here. He says that diversity is represented by brunettes. Um, so it's kind of true. Um, so I think we've raised very liberal-minded children who've gone out into the world and so forth. But um, th you're right. There is a kind of lizard brain, you know, sort of knee-jerk us versus them thing that happens. And and one of the things that I know, I mean, I'm, well, I shouldn't say I know, but I'm quite confident is going to be one of the biggest challenges that will happen no matter how what efforts we can miraculously pull together on climate change is there are um, places like the Marshall Islands, let's say, that are going, that are inevitably going to be underwater. That's just mm -hmm. a fact. And so the question is, how generous are those of us who are, you know, who, as I like to say, have accidentally won the geopolitical or the geo geographical lottery in terms of where we are, you know, how welcoming are we going to be? Are we willing to be? Um, and I think that is going to be one of the first challenges of what climate change is doing in the near future is, you know, is, uh, is bringing people in who have nowhere to live or nothing to eat. You know, we're going to face agricultural challenges too, but, uh, you know, that's something I'm thinking about. I actually, an event I did for this book a month ago at a very fancy sort of country club, and it was a wonderfully well-attended event, you know, lots of, it was kind of like a ladies' lunch and very smart readers, lots of book clubs. But when I went to sign books, this woman came rushing up to my table and said, I want you to know that I'm a climate refugee. And she was this beautifully dressed, well-coiffed and manicured woman. And I said, oh, and she said that she had to evacuate her town in Napa you know, twice because of the wildfires. Oh, so that fires, that was yeah. So she said, that was it. So I've moved to the East Coast. So I just wanted you to know that I am a climate refugee. And I thought, well, you know, yes, she she is, but that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking <laughs> not, about Napa wasn't you know, primary in your mind. No, I, when you were but, <laughs> but, but you look at California. I mean, I, I've got a child, a grown, I mean, early 20s, who wants to work in an industry that's based in Los Angeles. And I'm thinking, no, not California. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we all, we, we can also, so here's the thing, you know, living in New England, 
and you, you know, you're also in the Northeast, roughly. I mean, we, we feel pretty, we're not going to, we're not likely to have wildfires. We're not likely to be square center of a hurricane once in a while. Yes, that happens. Um, we, we're not prone to a lot of tornadoes. I mean, at the moment, as far as weather goes and climate, you know, it's not going to be 120 degrees, you know, it's, um, but at the same time, we are not shut off from, uh, domino effects. I mean, we, we are also very lucky in our water supply. I mean, I read about the future of water supply in the Southwest, and it just makes no sense to me that people are still moving there. But we, I mean, we don't need to go into talking about that. But, um, but there is a way in which I feel, at least for now, quite fortunate in terms of where I live. Because um, if, you know, if it's 105 degrees a couple days in a row this summer, you know, I, I can deal with that. So... Yeah, but you're so right that the domino effect is going to, it will affect everyone, no matter mm -hmm. where they are. And yeah. having water um, and having slightly more temperate temperatures will mean that we will have inevitably people coming and needing space and needing housing. And and I think of, you know, even back to, to epic literature, the Odyssey, the question of mm. how will you be hospitable to the stranger who comes, who needs those kinds of things, who needs food and shelter. And in the United States, we, we seem ill-equipped to do the kind of imagining required for how we will change our notion of property and ownership and belonging and community. Um, and I do, I, I feel hopeful that maybe fiction is a place that can help us start that imagining. Yes, absolutely. Or even just talking. You know, the other thing is... What I like to say is a book can't change the world, but readers of books can change the world. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. a book starts a conversation um, about something that needs to be changed, and if that book is fiction, you know, it can be just as powerful as nonfiction. And also, I think that we're living, I mean, we've been living in a time like this for a while, but particularly since the onset of covid we are overwhelmed with news. I mean, you know, add Ukraine, you know, to and, and add, you know, the school shootings and the the January 6th hearings. I mean, it, the weight of the news really honestly feels like it just gets heavier and heavier. And if so there's true. a way to to and con, to not stick our heads in the sand, but to read about and think about where the world is headed that is not through the news, then that can, that, that can be regenerative, I think. And I love that idea of it's 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 not the book, but it's the readers of a book who will, who right. will make the change. Um, you've been praised as a novelist of rich characters and driving plots. In an age of autofiction and brooding, sometimes plotless novels, who are the writers you turn to for uh, well-plotted character studies? You know, I, I, I cut my teeth as a reader Plot-wise, on the on the 19th century, you know, the masterpiece theater authors, you know, mm. George Eliot and and mm -hmm. Thomas Hardy and so forth. Um, but I'm just going to name a few contemporary writers who who have they, a book has to have for me depth of characters, you know, as well as as um, richness of plot. Uh, and and I, I Stuart Onan 
is someone who is a perennial favorite of mine. Um, and he's capable of writing really plot-driven, you know, even sometimes sort of dark, thrillery kinds of books. And then he can also write these very deeply character-focused novels. So he's someone I'm, I'm a big admirer of, and he has a new novel out now called Ocean State. Jim Harrison, who I named earlier, I mean, he's no longer with us, but he was very influential to me, I think. And, and, you know, many people have said to me, oh, my God, he's such a man's writer. Hmm. But the thing I loved about J- Jim Harrison's books is that there are always moral consequences for his bad boys. You know, his novels are full of womanizing, you know, drunk men doing very <laughs> foolish things. Um, but there's always a price to be paid and consequences are important. You know, I'm really coming to discover and love James Baldwin. I'm ashamed that I hadn't before. Um, you know, I just read if Beale Street could talk or, or could speak, is it? Speak, and I yeah. just and I could not put that down. Uh, Tara Jones is another writer I really love. Can't wait for her next one to come out. Jennifer Egan is 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 a magician. I mean it's like every one of her books is different and I, I'm always exci- I'm really excited about reading her new one. Mm-hmm. But I also want to mention a novelist who I read almost all of her novels. And and that is quite a lot of novels when I was a painter. And that's Iris Murdoch. And I think that Iris Murdoch is due to be rediscovered. She, you know, she's she's been a little bit in eclipse, and I'm not quite sure why, but I was absolutely in love with her and, and her rich plot. It's, they're almost overstuffed, her novels. I mean, she really pushes the envelope on plot, on coincidence, um, on on destiny. Uh, but I love her characters, love her novels. And, um, and when I look back, I think that she may have had, even though I read all these books before I really turned to writing fiction, I think that she had a large influence on the amount that I'm willing to, to sort of bite off uh, mm-hmm. because my because I really I love to populate a novel not, you know not to the extent of war and peace perhaps but um, <laughs> but 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 I think that I'm pretty good at choreographing all the characters too and and I want to add that one of the 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 sort of surprise pleasures I've had is um, the audiobook for Vigil Harbor there are nine and I'm and I'm going to mention it because. I'm not a listener of audiobooks, but I often have people come up to me at events and say, oh, I just listened to the audiobook of this or that, and I loved it. And um, this one, there are nine performers, and, and so I actually listened to samplings of all of them. I, I helped choose the cast members in some cases, but it's really a very rich listen as opposed to a rich read, and I, and I really want to yeah, – I mean, I, I, I just – I mean, of course, I'm here to promote my own book, but I also want to say that I that if people who are audiobook listeners, I think this one is particularly pleasurable. Um, I'm excited about that because the last one I read with such a a full cast was really wonderful too. George Saunders' um, Lincoln mm. and the Bardo has an incredible oh. cast of voice actors, and so I'll have to. Um, I'd love to listen to this on on audiobook as well. 
Yeah, I, I can also say, and, and this isn't the, my 26-year-old son reads uh, one of the lesser characters. He reads Egon, the son oh my of gosh. Mike. Oh, that, and so he had fantastic. to audition for it. I mean, he's, a, he's an actor. He had to audition for it and he had to do two. And I just like let him do. And he's in it. And I, 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 I listened with some trepidation. And when I was listening to him, to his part of the book, my, my husband was doing, was working in the yard, his father. And um, we, I was sitting in the kitchen, just listening with awe to my son read words that I had written. And he doesn't read my books, by the way, because, you know, you never know when you might encounter a sex scene written by your mother and that would be horrible. <laughs> um, but my, my, his father came into the kitchen and I just looked at him like, oh my God, can you believe this? And he looked at me as if to say, what? I said, it's Alec, our son. And he did not recognize our son's voice. Why? Because our uh. son is acting. And I hadn't, you know, I knew he'd been cast. Anyway, so it was fun. But there's, there's some, there's a nice variety. Margot is hilarious. Uh, You know, the sort of feisty character I read from. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm very, very pleased with that production. Well, I can't wait to listen to it. And I can't wait for my listeners to pick up Vigil Harbor because they will not be disappointed. And I want to thank you for such a a rich and, and wonderful conversation about your work. Well, thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. And I'm so glad to discover your podcast, too. Oh, thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Julia Glass. You'll find her recommendations for novels with driving plots and extraordinary characters at our website, burnedbybooks.com where you can also purchase Vigil Harbor and listen to all of our previous episodes. Thank you, as always, for listening. Do leave a rating if you have a moment, as it does help us bring in new listeners. There are exciting shows coming up this summer. Rachel Krantz, Alice Elliott Dark, and Hold the Phone, Mohsen Hamid. But until then, this has been Burned by Books. (laughs) 